everybody, and thank you for tuning into the Two Scientists podcast. Our guest this evening is uh, Professor of Astronomy at St. Petersburg College, uh, Antonio Paris. Thank you very much for coming out this evening, Antonio. Oh, well, thanks for inviting me, guys. Um, so I wanted to ask you, uh, you seem to have an awful lot of titles. If anybody puts you into Google, they'll find Professor of Astronomy, so you're a teacher, uh, Chief Scientist at the Center of Planetary Science, um, a founder of an organization investigating UFOs, managing space programs and, at, and the planetarium at our local Museum of Science and Industry in Tampa, and you're a candidate for a suborbital uh, astronaut program. Uh, so my first question is, when do you sleep? <laughs> um, well, as an astronomer, I tend to sleep during the daytime as much as I can. Sometimes they call us vampires because we're up all night. But I think uh, that stamina comes from my previous occupation or my previous career. I was an army officer. Mm -hmm. So I get up really early in the morning and I go to sleep late at night. So not a whole lot of sleep pattern. Um, but it, it, I get my sleep, you know, so as much as I can. Okay. So can you trace back a little bit for us your career? Because I understand you're a veteran and yeah. you've obviously worked your way down from... New York to D.C. and then sure. down to Tampa? Yeah, so born and raised in New York City. And uh, after college, I joined the military uh, as an officer, uh, infantry officer in the Army. And unfortunately, I was injured in Iraq. And if it wasn't for that, I think I probably would have made a career in the military. And I t uh, took advantage of the Army's GI Bill to go to graduate school, get my, uh, my degree in planetary science. And from that point forward, I've just uh, been a space scientist. I love astronomy. Uh, I love looking at the night sky. Um, I, you know, astronomy is a big is a big occupation. So I narrowed it down to uh, as a planetary scientist. I love the solar system. I love asteroids, and that's what I've been doing for the for the better part of the last four or five years. And it was through that these other little things came along, uh, including uh, aerial phenomena. Uh, teaching at St. Petersburg College, and obviously uh, chasing UFOs as well. And does that mean that you're one of those kids that always wanted to be an astronaut? Uh, not necessarily. I think it was more I was always interested in, in, uh, in space, in particular uh, if, there's, if there's life in the universe. And it, it all spawned that way. You know, I like to look at, when I, when I retire, I want to look back as my career as a book with many chapters. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I don't want to look back and say I spent the last 80 years as a carpenter, which mm -hmm. is not a bad thing. People love to be carpenters, but why not be a carpenter that has 30 or 40 different skill sets? Yep. And that's, that's what I want to do, and, and this is why my resume is so robust. Okay. So you, there are so many things that you actually work on. Um, which ones do you feel that you devote the most time to? Do you teach a lot? Do you do a lot of research? I'd say uh, most of my time is spent at the, at the college teaching. Mm -hmm. And with that comes a lot of other extra duties. Obviously, doing homework, doing research, writing books. I, I've, I've started my third book. And then the other half of my life is spent at uh, Mosey, where I am the new program manager for space programs. Just eight months ago, we only had a two or three space programs over there, and this week we now have a total of 14. So I was able to hire amateur astronomers who are now my apprentices, mm -hmm. and we've built that into a really nice astronomy program. Very nice. We look forward to coming to some of your events at some stage, I hope. This, this Saturday is our Skywatch on Halloween, so you got to come. 
Oh, unfortunately, we're going to be in <laughs> Philadelphia, but yeah, we'd love to. Um, okay, so you say you're a planetary scientist, but what does that actually mean that you do? I mean, people might say, all right, he, dummy, he studies si- it's planets. Kind of, it's basically being a planet detective. You, we, we look at the uh, history, the formation of planets, and uh, mostly from a we, what we call comparative planetology. We look at planet Earth from a, from a geologist perspective, meteorologist perspective. You name all the sciences that you can think of here on Earth, and we want to apply that to the other planets and, and figure out what's going on. You know, for example, why is Mars a geologically dead planet, and what can we learn from Mars that prevent that perhaps we can use to prevent Earth from becoming geologically dead? Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the the second big question is: Is there life? Um, at least microbial life on other planets, you know, or some of the moons around Jupiter or Saturn. So that's basically what a, a planetary science does. And the new science is uh, the extrasolar science is looking at uh, potential other solar systems in the universe uh, and looking for a habitable planets. So what's your baby? My baby, I would say, is Mars. Mm-hmm. And obviously because I think that's the next ticket for the next... 30 or 40 years, you know, NASA wants to go to Mars, the commercial private space programs want to go to Mars for for many reasons. So obviously this was a big story in the news not so long ago, and that was the discovery of water on there. So what do you think about that? Yeah, so let's go back a little bit. Initially it was evidence of water flowing on Mars, and I think they scaled it back down to seeping water on Mars, <laughs> okay, because people uh, already came with the vision of massive waterfalls or, you know, and, th- and what's happening is as the uh, different seasons come and go on Mars, the water tends to heat, rise, okay, through the surface, and some of that seeps through the surface. Mm-hmm. And what happens is as it comes up, just like carbon dioxide, it brings up a lot of the particles and those particles uh, are a little different color than the regolith. And when they come up, it leaves a kind of like little trails and little evidence of something that's coming up. Mm-hmm. And the data suggests that it is possibly water that's coming up to the surface. So what we want to, you know, if, if that is, you know, actually what's going on, we want to know how much actual water is beneath the surface because mm-hmm. that's going to be important for, for exploration if we're, if we're going to send humans to Mars. Yep. But I think we're... Overlooking other potential places, for example, Europa. Mm-hmm. Europa is uh, something I'm looking at also for the next couple of months. It seems to be the most logical place to look for life, particularly because it, we think it has a, uh, a ocean underneath the ice. And when you have a warm core and oceans, the potential for life uh, increases there. Okay, for the ignorant among us, remind us where Europa is. Europa is a uh, one of Jupiter's uh, four Galilean moons. Um, it's it's relatively close in orbit around Jupiter, and it's basically uh, a nice ice planet. Um, and underneath the ice, we believe, is a warm ocean made of salt. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the theory of how life on Earth started, right, warm water, uh, a warm core, etc. The parallels are, are strikingly equal. So, by the way, NASA just did announce their mission to, to uh, Europa. So hopefully, we'll get there in about 20 years. But if we're going to look for life in the solar system, uh, Europa is, is probably our number one ticket. Now, having talked about Mars, you've got to know that my next question is going to be about The Martian, right? So, yep. what did you think about the film? I think it was a good movie. It's, it's not my top movie. I think... Mm-hmm. 
I really liked Gravity better. I liked Interstellar better. Um, 2001, all the classics were better. Mm-hmm. I think The Martian was a, uh, a more of an engineering uh, perspective movie, which I thought was kind of cool. Is yeah. is a, an engineer and a botanist? How do we survive on Mars? Mm-hmm. It wasn't really a space exploration movie per no. se. Very little time spent on the on the mission there. Um, it was more of a, a planetary scientist uh, movie. Yeah. yeah. But it does make it feel very much like this is an achievable goal. At least, you know, the, the way it came across in the film, it just seems like, oh, yeah, it's, we'll be Mars soon. It is achievable, but the biggest thing that, that is our drawback is, and unfortunately, is money. Money is what's going to take us to Mars. Space programs are very expensive. We're talking in the billions and billions and billions of dollars. And, you know, from an economic perspective, should we spend that money exploring Mars? I think we should. We're, we're explorers, right? That's what we do. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, uh, billions of years from now, we, we need to find somewhere else. Humans eventually will have to emigrate somewhere else because Earth will become uh, inhospitable. And Mars, Mars is like, you know, it's, it is the next stop, you know, if we're going to explore the solar system. And so uh, David asked me one of these questions earlier, which is, uh, do you think that NASA's budget going down is sufficiently compensated by private new ventures? Yeah, I think so. Uh, the spa- I, I personally believe that the commercial space industry is the way to go, and I think in the next 10, 15 years, they will be the, the leaders in space exploration. Mm-hmm. Um, they can do it faster, they can do it cheaper, uh, and they can do it with pr- private equity rather than taxpayers' dollars. That's not to say that NASA should go away. NASA does really great stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, we've learned so much about the solar system and beyond because of NASA, because of uh, the European Space Agency, the Japanese, you name it, everyone coming together. Yes, on the subject of NASA, they do some great things in terms of, you just told me you have a NASA grant for your Center for Planetary Science. Mm-hmm. Now tell us a little bit more about that, because this is more of an outreach organization. The Center for Planetary Science is a, is a outreach program designed with one thing in mind, and that is to motivate and shape uh, the next generation of space explorers, uh, specifically from people from my background, which is uh, low-income uh, minorities that really uh, don't have the necessary tools or actually the motivation to become part of the whole STEM program, science, technology, engineering, and math. So, you know, I came up with this proposal, hey, let's, let's do this program and reach out to local communities, especially low-income schools, undeserved schools, and have, you know, motivate these young kids to stay in school, love science, not just about space, you know, engineering, math, all those good things, and, you know, if I can just get one kid and save him and not become a dropout and go to college, and who knows, that could be the next astronaut. In just the last couple of years, I've gotten so many emails from kids that have embraced science because of the website, and mm-hmm. they're off in college now, and they're, they're becoming, you know, the people that are going to relieve me in the future, you know, the next, the next uh, astronomers in planetary yeah. science. And I, I think that's... Just what a little grant money can do, I think that's pretty cool. It sounds very gratifying. Yeah, it is. So as well as the website, do you have any kind of um, outreach programs? Whereby you yeah, sure. I go out at least once a month, sometimes once a quarter, and I bring out my telescopes and I meet local kids at schools, uh, whether they're private schools, public schools, and I can spend a couple hours with them showing them how telescopes work, um, what are the things we can see in the night sky, and it's just amazing to see 
both kids and adults looking at Saturn for the first time. Mm-hmm. You know, and like, and they'll they'll look in the front. You know, they think it's fake or something. Yeah. And I'm telling them, no, that's 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 actually Saturn. That's actually the moons of Jupiter. That's an actual nebula in Orion. And kids just go crazy, and they go out and buy astronomy books, and they just. I get them all the time. Six months later, Professor Paris, you came to my school. Recommend a telescope for me. Here's my budget. Mm-hmm. And those are the those are the success stories I love to see. Yeah, that's phenomenal. Yeah, it sounds like so much fun. And I have to say, I wished that I had something like this growing up, because I had some very sad inherited 70s encyclopedias with pictures of what the planets look like. And of course, they don't compare to the images that we get from. Um, telescopes from certainly you know things like Hubble these days it's just it's another world yeah, Hubble's been a great workhorse we just celebrated the, her 25th anniversary back in May and you know I told my students 30 40 years ago it, a lot of it was speculation and conjecture about nebulas and, and, and pulsars and neutron stars and Hubble has been the the detective workhorse that has finally said Okay, this image that we drew 20 years ago, and it was just a theory. Here's an actual image of what we thought what was going on. And now we can say, wow, just in the 90s, you know, this was theory. Now Hubble's actually seen that stuff, and I thought that's pretty cool. So specifically in terms of your science, tell us what you do on, uh, I guess, daily or however often you get to do your research. Mars is what I've been looking at for the, about the last two years, and mostly the geology of Mars, looking at the geological structures such as crater formation, how do craters differ on Mars compared to on the lunar surface, Um, looking at uh, what potentially looks like ancient water flow. Um, Why was there a water flow here on Mars, or what at least appears to be ancient water flow, and not, you know, why is there water flow in this latitude and not in this latitude? The big question is we want to know is why did Mars die? Um, why did it lose its, its, its magnetosphere so quickly, and why is the, the atmosphere thinning out? Um, and comparing that with with other planets, Venus. Venus is like the opposite. Venus is mm. is a huge atmosphere, very thick in carbon dioxide. It's got a you know runaway greenhouse effect. Uh, so we're in the middle of two different, completely different planets, which mm. is kind of like what's going on here. Um, so that's what I'm looking at, Mars. Does that make us the Goldilocks kind of planet? It may, you know, we, that used to be a term, and I think it's still vaguely used because here we're, here's Earth at this perfect location, which, by the way, we just recently learned that uh, the moon itself, our moon, could be the reason why there's life on Earth. You know, it, it, was, it was through a collision of a, of a Mars-like planet that formed the moon, and it was that collision that perhaps spun the core and created life. So now we're looking at, wait a minute, what do we to redefine this Goldilocks zone? If we're going to look for extrasolar planets, does it also have to have a moon? Um, does it have to be in between a Venus-like and a Mars-like planet? So the, the term is being redefined as we, you know, as we speak as well. So I'm going to segue into one of the questions that we got from Twitter, which was from Stephen Williams, who said, um, at moonrise... The moon looks super big versus when it's high in the sky. Would Earth appear th- that way from the moon? Uh, no, because what's, what's going on here on Earth, it's an optical illusion. Uh, when you're seeing the moon rise along the horizon, your eyes place tricks on you. You tend to compare it with the buildings, the trees, and the surrounding area 
and because the moon it looks so much bigger than the trees and buildings it's actually an optical illusion mm-hmm. and as it starts to rise and you have nothing to redefine it along the moon it, it appears normal okay so uh, as I mentioned earlier you are a candidate for an astronaut program yes so please tell us more about that this sounds intriguing yeah sure it's uh, it's called Project Possum and Possum stands for uh, Polar Suborbital in the Upper Atmosphere Program we do not know why there's 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 these certain particular clouds in the in the uh, in the poles, and we don't know why they're forming. It, it could possibly be due to global warming. We don't know, um, or climate change. So, NASA has a program called Space Flight Opportunities, where they encourage and perhaps sometimes fund the private industry to launch these suborbital programs and conduct imagery of these nocturnal clouds. So that's the program itself. Let's go study these clouds from space from the, uh, the mesospheres just above the Karma line. So I saw this program online, and uh, I didn't think I was going to get in. Apparently, there was thousands of applicants. Mm-hmm. And so I applied. I talked to Jason, which is one of the lead investigators up in uh, Daytona. And after a, s- a couple of interviews, emails, going back and forth with resumes and, and, and some other data, I was selected. So that doesn't mean I'm going to fly, though. It, mm-hmm. it is... It is they did draw it down to 30 or 40 candidates, that's what they were called, and the, the training starts in May. Out of those 30, only four or five, I think actually up to six, will make the 2017 flight. Okay. Uh, X-Core is the spacecraft, the tender of the spacecraft that's being built up in the, by the Swiss. Kind of looks like a mini space shuttle right? Um, where it's a pilot and two scientists. And it's going to take off either in Switzerland and Alaska. And it'll do a series of suborbital flights. So it'll suborbit, take imagery, come back down, suborbit, take imagery, and come down. So that'd be kind of neat. You know, if I get selected for that, uh, mm-hmm. that'd be pretty cool. It does sound like it would be fun. And you'd still get a view of the planet that very, very few people have ever Yeah, had. you know, I'm, I'm really grateful that I got selected. And if I can get the training out of the way, I, that's even, that's, you know... Uh, more, you know, more kudos to them. Mm-hmm. But if I can actually get on the flight, you know, I'm going to obviously work my ass off to to get the best grades in the, at the little academy that they have, mm-hmm. um, and continue doing research up till then. That that's actually kind of supporting their programs. I think I'll have a good shot at, okay. at one of those six. So, would you have to do the same kind of physically demanding things that? No, like this is this is completely do? different. This okay. is not uh, uh, like a NASA astronaut academy. Most of it is academic, a lot of scientific research. There is some uh, anti-gravity training, um, some uh, mostly uh, uh, simulation training stuff like that. There's some high uh, aerobatic training in aircraft, things like that, to make sure. Uh, obviously, I have to pass the FAA uh, flight test, um, mm-hmm. make sure I'm not colorblind and things like yeah. that. So, pass a physical, make sure I don't have a heart attack, you know, in, uh, up in space. And so, yes. so some requirements are stringent as far as physical uh, and academic. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, David possibly wants to rile some people by saying, do we need astronauts for space exploration or are robots and other mechanic probes enough? We need both. We need both, just like we need soldiers and tanks in the battlefield. We, we can't do one without the other. Um, robots are great, but robots, uh, you know, they tend to be built by the lowest bidder, and they break. Things break in space, um, as we have seen. But I think humans, the, the human spirit, the human mind, the eyes are very important, and, and it's not about which is better. I think both complement each other. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. 
That's a very smart answer, I think. So this is actually from one of your students who's kindly come out to support you this evening. Oh, good. Uh, ben would, uh, has said, a star was recently found 1,500 light years away with seemingly artificial structures around it. What are your thoughts on it? I, I've, I've read the, uh, both ends of the spectrum. I've read the science and I've read the tabloids. Um, there's just not enough data right now. And, and, and it could be anything. It could be debris from a comet. It could be debris from an asteroid. Um, it could be moonlets, multiple moonlets. Um, and then the, the tabloids suggest it could be extraterrestrial. I always like to say this word. We don't have evidence for either way. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's okay to speculate, you know, yeah. as long as it's speculation. Um, my personal opinion, I don't know. It could be, it could be either. Okay. Yeah. So speaking of speculation and extraterrestrials, tell us more about the, the UFO investigation thing that you have going on. Yeah, sure. So um, obviously I have a huge, I'm a huge fan of space and I always, from an academic perspective, always find myself asking the question, is there life in the universe? And about five years ago I was in Maryland and someone sent me an email to go to this UFO meeting and I did and I found it rather interesting you know people talking about ufos you know i'm sitting in the background like oh well that can't really happen and things like that but i was interested in one fellow and don borton that was his name and he was a scientist he was a scientist like myself also a professor and i asked myself what is he doing here you know and i always thought that scientists kind of stay away from this kind of thing mm-hmm. and i'll never forget this he told me well you know scientists when they look at ufos they compare it to like cheesecake. He said, we know it's okay. bad for us, right? We know cheesecake is bad for us, but we still eat it no matter what. And, and he, he put it in that perspective. He goes, science is what I do 99%, but on uh, occasionally I like to look at the phenomena from uh, why is it that people believe this? Why is it that these large organizations uh, believe in UFOs? And he, he said, why don't you join this organization? And he showed me this manual, which is pretty big, written by lots of scientists and that's how I became interested. You know, these guys were using the, the six-step scientific method. A lot of it was written by former FBI agents, so a lot of investigative skills and uh, processes in there. And, and I was like, I, can, I would love to study this UFO phenomena from a serious scientific perspective. And that's what I did. I, I, I sent out this you know, email, hey, who wants to join this group I'm about to form? But you got to have these kind of backgrounds. I just don't want any crazy person joining the, 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 <laughs> the organization. And I had Paul Carr, who's my deputy, who's a spacecraft engineer. He's building right now the next spacecraft going into deep space. Um, I had retired airline pilots. I had FBI agents, police officers, other professors that said, hey, yeah, I would kind of like to look into this. And that's what we did. So we built this team of professionals and trying to determine what is it that these people believe in so much? Why is it that it's such a phenomenon and it's such a craze? And ever since then, we've been looking at hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cases and doing some type of triage and doing select interviews and figuring out is, is this stuff actually legitimate. In the last five years, to be honest, the, the data does not lean any which way. You know, very anecdotal information. No evidence to suggest ET exists. No evidence to suggest they don't exist. But what I can say is, if I can boil it down to one sentence, is the UFO phenomena is real. People are seeing things. You know, I can't say that every single person is crazy um, because I've interviewed some very respectable people. But there's no evidence to suggest that what they saw is extraterrestrial. 
Was there anything that even for a minute that you thought, oh, wow, this is really interesting? There was one really, really good case out of New Mexico, and um, this person sent me a FedEx of, this is legitimate debris from a UFO crash. Mm -hmm. And I, I opened it up. I see these crazy metal. I'm like, okay, this is kind of cool. And we received a grant from an organization called the uh, Fair Trust Organization that allowed us to go out there, and we brought, you know, radiation detectors, a lot of you know, legitimate uh, scientific equipment. We spent about three days digging, and what we found was, I thought this was pretty cool, the remains of a World War II aircraft that had crashed there. So, and we brought a forensics guy with us, an actual aircraft archaeologist. And we put the things together. We contacted the Department of Defense, who gave us um, the archives and the crash records, and even the uh, obituary of the pilot that was killed. And we were able to say, okay, this is not a UFO. What you found was uh, a legitimate World War II aircraft that, that crashed during training. I thought it was pretty cool. We, we put closure to a case, even though it didn't turn out to be aliens. That's, it's a really neat story, actually. Mm -hmm. So, uh, in a similar vein, what are your thoughts on the declassified Area 51 tests? Um, well, I, I, if you look on some of my websites, we actually went out to Area 51 and, and did a documentary on Area 51. Area 51 is a really mysterious place. What people don't understand that Area 51 is a, is a number of many areas. Mm -hmm. There's an Area 22. There's an Area 50. There's an Area 162. And the, the New Age claptrap, which I like to call the conspiracy theories, they always center themselves at Area 51 because that's where the UFO lore um, and the local legends uh, arose from. Uh -huh. So years ago, we're talking early 50s, yeah, uh, the CIA, the, the Roadrunners the, were developing very highly classified projects there. And in order, and this is allegedly true, in order to keep that project classified, they intentionally did a program in this area of the base with uh, aircraft that looked like UFOs, intentionally, mm -hmm. to keep all the people chasing UFOs on this end, uh -huh. where the, the actual programs that they were developing were, were protected over here. So that's the story that they intentionally created the UFO lore at Area 51 to keep the crazies on this side while they were developing the SR-71, the U-2, etc. Uh, at the other end of the base. So, Except, of course, obviously that's a conspiracy theory. Yeah, the, no matter what <laughs> answer I get, it's, not, no one's going to believe it. So, yeah. But that, that, that's, that's a legitimate story. There's a lot of uh, historical documents and, and information to back that up. It's all in the National Archives. But again, they'll say it's a conspiracy as well. So, yep. so I have one from Angela which says... Fermi Paradox? Well, the Fermi Paradox was um, basically what it comes down to is where is everybody? Mm -hmm. So uh, the, this guy came, named Dre came up with this equation that changes every Saturday, basically. <laughs> and he said, if there's so many planets, so many stars, so many galaxies, etc., there should be so many extraterrestrials. Um, and then this guy came along named uh, Enrico Fermi and said, well, if all this data is correct and there's supposed to be actually billions of civilizations out there, he says, where is everybody? And there has been numerous and numerous responses to the Fermi Paradox, uh, everything from they're too far away, or they have not reached the technological, the, the level of technological intelligence. Mm -hmm. um, they communicate differently from us. Uh, my personal opinion, I just think that if there's a life in the universe... They are just too far away right now mm -hmm. at this point. The speed of light is the speed limit in space. Um, and if, if 
the closest, let's say, uh, intelligent species is, let's say, a million light years away, um, that signal perhaps is it's just not going to get here. More importantly, all radio signals degrade over time. You know, our radio signals only degrade after a couple of years. Mm-hmm. So nobody's going to listen to us anytime soon. Yeah. Um, so perhaps their signals have not reached us or their signals have degraded. I personally believe there has to be something out there. Um, you know, given the, the, the complexity and the numbers of, of, of stars in the universe, mm-hmm. there, there should be something out there. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, switching more to the kind of space travel and whether people work in collaboration with each other, Arturo asks, are there a lot of collaborations across nations or does the U.S. kind of do its own thing? Uh, when it comes to the International Space Station, um, there's obviously a lot of collaboration. It was built by o- over a dozen countries and there are different nationalities on board. Um, but all space programs are based on a budget that's based on some type of initiative, okay? Uh, United States initiatives right now is space exploration from a solar system perspective. If we're looking at China now, they have a major interest in the moon. I think the Russians as well, and perhaps India. And I think that is all centered on trying to exploit helium-3 on the lunar surface for, uh, for fusion. Whereas where the United States is more looking at outwardly to Mars um, and beyond. But there is crosstalk. There has to be uh, collaboration. And a lot of the technology is actually shared, you know. So uh, a spacecraft, for example, you know, is built by probably hundreds of different companies. And Mm -hmm. some of them are international companies. So everybody has a little piece of the pie, you know, of, of what's going on. We were actually listening to another podcast recently, which was discussing the prospect that science really only advances in huge leaps and bounds when you have some kind of disastrous situation. Like, you know, it was the the Cold War that was responsible for the space race, for instance. Yeah. Do you think it's something like that that might compel the U.S. to start funding huge amounts of this kind of uh, research? I think the flavor for the next 20, 30 years is climate change. And scientists are trying to figure out what is it that's causing climate change. Is it based on humans? Is it natural? Is it both together? But we need to figure out if it's what's going on here on Earth because we look at Mars, which is geologically dying, uh, as well as Venus. Um, is it that something that we're doing or is it something natural? Mm-hmm. Um, all planets are eventually going to die. There's nothing we can do about it. Okay, yeah. uh, Earth, unfortunately, is a small terrestrial planet. It's, it's going to cool off in a few billion years, and it's going to die. I really like this one. Um, this is another one from Angela, who says, Do you see space exploration moving toward mining resources from asteroids, etc., in the near future? Yes, but we have to be careful with that. There is a, uh, the Outer Space Treaty forbids, I don't know if it forbids, but it prohibits any one nation from going to the celestial object like the moon or asteroid and mining it for financial gain. Um, some private uh, industries are saying, well, does that mean government or does that mean the private industry? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of debate going on who can actually do that. Uh, it, it's not easy. It costs a lot of money to launch a spacecraft. Um, it costs a lot of money to send a spacecraft and catch up with an asteroid mm-hmm. and land it there. And it costs a lot of money to bring it back. So yeah. the return in the investment is, it has to be astronomical 
for us to do that. But I think some, someone's <laughs> going to do it because they're going to say we did it. And that's just the, the, yeah. the spirit that we live in. Yeah. Uh, I'm not even sure I approve of this question. Um, Arturo oh, said, can we send our garbage to space? Uh, no, it would cost too much. I mean, you know, a typical launch is about $20 million. It's the cheapest SpaceX can probably do. Uh, NASA does it for about $1 billion. Mm-hmm. You see the difference now? Um, no, it's probably cheaper to, to burn it or, or sadly dump it in the ocean. Yeah. On that subject, though, I suspect this is more linked to kind of old floating satellites and things. How polluted is space? It's not that polluted. You, people see these images on Google of space junk, and it's almost like the asteroid belt. People mm-hmm. look at Star Wars and they see the asteroid belt. Really, the space between uh, debris and space is, is thousands of miles. So the likelihood, and NASA tracks all these things. So there's, but there's, there is thousands of defunct spacecraft up there. Um, a lot of it will eventually deorbit and burn up in the atmosphere. But yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff up there. We have to be careful what we're launching. Um, I think NASA is getting really good at launching stuff and making sure it comes back down safely, rather than being <clears throat> for years in orbit. Which is, it, and this is actually cool. Two weeks ago, we were looking at a telescope, and we saw a light blink, 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 and we're like, okay, what's that? And we quickly looked at Stellarium, and it was an old Russian rocket still in oh, orbit wow. that was tumbling so the sun was hitting it the sun was hitting it the sun was hitting it oh wow and it was a, a, a tumbling rockets that was the first time we've seen space junk through a telescope oh very cool mm-hmm. so before we sign off as usual we want to say thanks to the new world for hosting us in their little space and also a huge thanks to the band hope darling who will be providing the track for this particular podcast recording now, these guys will be playing Friday, uh, November 20th at Ferg's Live uh, in Tampa to try and earn their spot as a local band featured in the next big thing. So we'd love for everybody to go out and see them in person, and they would really appreciate that. So thank you very much again, Antonio, for coming out to speak to us. It's been really good fun. Thank you. Um, we really appreciate your time. No, this was fun. Thank you very much. All right. Yay! Well done. Unfortunately, most of the emails I get had to do with uh, UFOs, aliens, and stuff like that. And so yesterday, in Newport Ritchie, of all places, um, allegedly a man told me that, someone's sincere too, this is what makes me scared, that a UFO landed on his front yard. This is Newport Ritchie, right? So there must have been multiple witnesses. Um, UFO lands on his front porch, uh, extraterrestrial, he calls it the greys. I think we all know what that looks like. 
uh, walked up to him and telepathically told him uh, that he was not there to harm him and that it was a short visit and that he was going, the alien was going to text him the next time he came for, a, uh, for an interview. Yes, for an interview. So the alien then got in his little spacecraft, took off silently, and that was what the email was about. listening to a Two Scientists podcast. Now, if you'd like to keep up with our new releases, you can follow us on Twitter at 2SCIS, Facebook or Google Plus using the handle Two Scientists, or for the more old school among you, you can check out our website at twoscientists.org. Thanks for tuning in. Star Trek or Star Wars? Uh, Star Trek.